welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. So this week, I am joined by Sarah Berger, who is a research staff member and cognitive and behavioral neuroscientist at IBM Research. She holds a PhD in neuroscience from Northwestern University and a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from McAllister College. Sarah's background lies in systems and cognitive neuroscience with an emphasis on chronic pain conditions and psychology. In the past, she's focused on identifying, quantifying and predicting changes in acute and chronic pain in both animals and humans with a decade of experience in the field of pain. And at IBM, she is applying her knowledge of neuroimaging, psychology and clinical research to address a wide variety of questions and applications. And so IBM Research is the research and development division for IBM, an American multinational IT company headquartered in Yorktown with operations in over 170 countries, 50 countries more than listen to my podcast. But there we go. (laughs) Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So looking forward to getting into this. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm uh, happy it's almost Friday. (laughs) Absolutely. Tell me about it. It's been a heck of a week this week. Um, Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Sarah? So even though I'm based out of your town, I actually live in uh, Portland, Oregon. So I'm all the way on the other uh, uh, coast. Yeah. Excellent. So Sarah, the way that we start these podcasts is we get you to tell a bit of your story. Uh, Obviously, you've got a pretty fascinating background here and obviously leading up to, to IBM via academia and all sorts. So it'd be great for our listeners. Maybe tell us the long version of your story. Okay, sure. Um, So I've been interested in the brain for as long as I can remember. I was a really precocious kid. Um, And I got my first brain book actually when I was 10. Um, My mother came out to me as a lesbian and I was so curious about this. I wanted to know, right, you know, um, what is choice? What is decision? What is love? What, you know, all these things. And she did not know how to explain that to me. So she gave me this really (laughs) complicated book that I had to, you know, basically ask questions every two seconds because I didn't understand (laughs) most of the words, but that really got me uh, interested in, in the brain. Um, and then at the same time, I had a grandfather who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And then I had my dad, um, who had just, finished chemotherapy and had chronic pain um, in his limbs from, from the chemotherapy. So I was like really curious about, you know, all the stuff that was going on in our nervous system. And at age 17, I discovered that you could actually, (laughs) um, you could study the brain for a living. I found out what a neuroscientist was. And so I was like, that's what I want to do. And I went and I looked for colleges all over the country that would allow me to do a neuroscience bachelor degree. And that led me to McAllister within the first month (laughs) I declared my major. Um, And I found a lab that serendipitously uh, studied pain (laughs) Um, and both in humans and animals. uh, My previous uh, advisor there, uh, Dr. Eric Wordelak, he um, was really big into uh, Eastern medicine and alternative therapies for pain. So you know, we were doing everything from like acupuncture and rats, um, (laughs) you know, to uh, hooking up, you know, people to EEGs and measuring pain empathy, you know, we were doing the whole gamut of things. Um, And I I absolutely, I loved it. 
and so when I decided to do a PhD, um, I think originally I had, I had thought I always wanted to be like a professor, have my own lab, that whole thing, you know, traditional academic route. And so I wanted to stick with pain. Um, and so I went to Northwestern and worked under um, Dr. Vanya Karian, uh, who is a renowned pain researcher there. Um, I realized very quickly that academia just wasn't for me. <laughs> I wanted um, something bigger. I wanted something faster in some ways, right? Um, and you know, I wanted to help solve much, much larger problems. Um, and I'm not saying that academia can't do that because obviously it can. It's just you know, a lot of times the funding isn't there. Um, <laughs> the you know other types of resources aren't there, even people-wise, and so. Um, you know, I, I definitely knew very quickly that I wanted to do something else. Um, and I also knew I didn't really fit into the traditional academic box of you focus on one thing, you dedicate your entire life to one aspect of that thing. Um, I pain for me is so, um, multidisciplinary, right? Uh, it, you can look at it from a cellular perspective, um, and, and a tissue perspective, but you can also look at it philosophically and socially and culturally and uh, you know psychologically. And so there's so many different sides um, to the same story and that's particularly why I like studying it. Um, and so uh, I did my PhD. I actually had started off with animal research, uh, you know, very much clinical translational research, trying to find um, new treatments for, for chronic pain. Um, but very quickly, I realized that I loved working with people and patients. <laughs> and so that led me to halfway through my original dissertation, I made this huge switch. And I said, I want to work with with people, I want to do neuroimaging, I want to do interviewing of people, um, find out more about their stories, right. Um, and that then got me into this weird uh, realm of having now animal research and pharmacological research, but then also clinical research and you know quantitative and qualitative research all combined. Um, and so when I was leaving my PhD, one of my uh, advisors was actually uh, on uh, from IBM on my committee and said, you know, we have this incredible opportunity with this client coming up. Uh, you'd be a really good fit. Uh, do you want to do this? And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> me work in tech. Uh, I might as well try to interview, you know, why not? Uh, you know, life is all about change and trying new things and taking risks. So, uh, I said, yes. And I went out and interviewed and I absolutely loved it. Um, I love the people. I love the environment. Um, I could tell everybody was really excited about what they did. And so I said, yes. And so, <laughs> you know, three days after I defended my PhD, I was out at IBM in New York and uh, wow. <laughs> the rest is kind of history. What so. a story. We'll definitely get into to IBM in a second, but there's a few bits that I definitely want to talk to you about here. So Please. Yeah. my background is obviously, I, I'm an anesthetist and intensive care mm -hmm. doctor by training. Uh, so anesthesiologist, I guess. Yeah. You guys. And obviously pain in the, UK, in the UK in anesthesiology, pain is a huge thing that we study, that we talk about, we treat. We're experts in treating pain in, in theory um, through mm -hmm. various different means. But what was always interesting to me, and you touched on it here, is that 
pain you can talk about at the cellular level like you said and you can talk about it culturally socially and you even mentioned like a focus on eastern medicine mm-hmm. your story as well it's always fascinated me how culturally different people can seemingly feel pain differently they certainly express pain differently and I can remember even when I was on my obstetrics rotations mm-hmm. depending on where women were from around the world there were even ways that they would deal with that type of childbirth pain mm-hmm. and it and it would always go through my mind you know are they are they mm-hmm. are they sensing pain differently are they feeling pain differently are they just expressing pain differently it's it's very it's it's impossible to know impossible to tell mm-hmm. right but it's yeah. incredibly interesting and strange and wonderful that the body and people and humans can be so different culturally and pain is a, is an interesting one that we seemingly all express right very, very I think differently it's- I think it's interesting too, because again, and, and this is kind of how we are taught to think about science, but and the body, but we, we treat the body and I include the brain in the body. Um, we yeah. treat it as if it's this input output system, right? Like you, we give you this stimulus and you will feel this and everybody tends to feel this and, you know, you get this output in reality, perception, <laughs> right? Is never like that. It is not linear. It is not one, you know, dimension, right? It's when, when someone asked me again, sticking with pain, it's like, if someone asked me to rate my pain from zero to 10 in that rating, I have to go, well, what was my, you know, what's the worst pain I've ever had before? And how am I feeling right now? And how am I sitting? And you're like very aware of, of your body and space. Also, what culture am I in? Is it okay for me to talk about my pain? Right. Will it be viewed as weak? Um, you know, will people believe me? If someone on the other end who's listening, do they believe that I'm actually in it? It is this dynamic, constantly social, even political at times, right? If you're talking about like all the, you know, opioids um, that we're, you know, the opioid crisis we're dealing with. So it's, it's to actually speak about pain as a patient is just a phenomenally complex occurrence that happens. Hugely. And I think people, Hugely. you know, forget about that. And I think particularly as well, you know, I've actually, I've come off a couple of different podcasts today, even talking about a lot of mental health issues, struggles, solutions, things like that. There's also psychological pain. You know, if you break up with someone in a relationship, you have psychological pain and Mm -hmm. your behavior is expressive of that pain. I can remember being in a pain clinic, actually, when I was training as an anesthetist and someone came in and I suppose be careful how I frame this or phrase this, but they, they were expressing pain of no known origin. Let's put it that way. Yeah. They were clearly in pain from something. It was generalized. It wasn't localized. It was impossible to poke at something or point at something and say where the pain was. And as a young, naive doctor at the time, in what was going through my mind was they're faking it. Mm-hmm. And the consultant said to me afterwards, what do you, what do you think? The attending said to me afterwards, you know, what did you think? And I said, well, you know, you have various phrases for that in medicine where you said, whether you say it's super tentorial or you say it's, you know, something along those lines to indicate that you think they're faking it. I said one of those phrases along the line and he just turned around and he said to me, you just got to remember James, that that is an expression of pain 
mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. somehow, whether you think it's physical, psychological, psychosomatic, whatever you, mm-hmm. whatever you think, you've just seen someone expressing their pain. And mm-hmm. you know what, that, that really stuck with me. It really stuck with me from a clin- from a clinical point of view as a, as a doctor that went on to do, you know, more years as a clinician, but also just generally as a person, like no matter what someone's behavior is, however challenging that behavior is, if they are in pain, that could well be the expression of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're a million miles from talking about technology here, but I, I just think like as a, as a formative experience in my life and around pain, that was certainly one of them. And as you say, it comes down to whether it's semantics or language. I'm sure the word pain is so different in so many different languages even as well. But, um, it, it must be. And it's also, you know, I mean, pain often, right, especially when you're in intense pain, it escapes mm. language, right? Like it is no longer verbal at some point. It is guttural. It is nonverbal. And, 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 and that, you know, that's an interesting problem. So as somebody who studies pain and also studies language of pain, right, like, Um, it's one of those things where it's like, you're trying to capture people's ideas about this, but oftentimes when you're at that intensity of whatever type of pain you're experiencing, you cannot actually capture it. Right. It's, it's a sound or, or even a lack of sound because you're in so much pain. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that is, you know, it's fascinating. Um, but it's, it's important, you know, what, what you said too, you know, we're far beyond, you know, talking about technology, but we actually really aren't, right? Because, you know, in order for technology, in my opinion, to help pain patients, we have to be thinking like this, right? We have to be thinking about, you know, that that we can't just expect, you know, a, a rating on a numeric scale to tell the whole story, yeah. right? Um, so, and we have to actually listen to people's stories to really understand what they need and where they're coming from. Um, and it starts with believing patients, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a really good point, because even when when we think about digital therapeutics for, for chronic pain or whatever it is, you know, you talk about input output and, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which obviously lends itself to technology, too. As you say, if the if the communication of someone's pain is not doable on a one to 10 scale if it is just in someone's story, if it is in the tone of their voice, if it is mm-hmm. in all these different possible inputs right then in order to diagnose it in order to understand it in order to give the best course of action to Mm -hmm. treat it pain has to or whatever Mm -hmm. digital therapeutic it was or indeed any other technology solution you're right would have to take all of those things into account right and also the stories that are missing you know, so like if we think about like health equity, you know, we have yeah. we're talking about malingering here, um, but you know, then we also have these intersections of other kinds of identities. You might not just be a pain patient, but you might be a woman in pain yes. or a black person in pain, and then you're you know you have all of these things intersecting into the same story and having different amounts of different kinds of pains within that story. The chronic physical aspect the, you know, social aspect of being a minority, like, like, and obviously that's not something that is easily quantifiable, but we, you know, we, in my opinion, we have to account for it in our tech. Um, Yeah. yeah. And actually what's just come to my mind there is often when we think about a technology solution for something in healthcare, whether that's inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, whether it's, you know, in this case, 
acute or chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say chronic pain, to be fair. A lot of the time, we're looking for quite a reductive solution. We're looking for something that's just like easy to text. Some It can detect something very easy, whether that's through patient reporting on a one mm-hmm. to 10 scale, mm-hmm. it flashes something up and then the patient does it. We change behavior, we get them better. They've not seen anyone. It's all software. It's completely scalable. And that's all wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think here is a perfect example of why, where technology can do that, it should be doing that because mm-hmm. actually we're going to free up and emancipate most and other clinicians from mm-hmm. having to do that stuff mm-hmm. to be able to have the time to listen to people's stories, mm-hmm. to actually understand the complex yeah. nature of, I don't know, like something like complex regional pain syndrome, like something, something like yeah. that that's going to have so many different things to it mm-hmm. and so many different ways of, of treating it and having to personalize it. I don't think we can expect, <clears throat> excuse me, technology to solve all of those problems. It can help, but really mm-hmm. we need to emancipate the clinicians that are currently bogged under, bogged mm. down with, with all that stuff so that they can do this stuff to, to mm-hmm. solve more things in things like chronic pain, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. But anyway, I'm going to pull us back slightly because one more thing I want to talk, talk about in your background before we move on to IBM. And that that was the realization that academia wasn't for you. This comes up a lot on this podcast. There are lots of people that have done PhDs or lots of people that have embarked on a career in academia even and got to this point where they think and realize and see and have the self-awareness to see it's not for them. They are destined for something else. And as you've said, that's not a slight on academia because academia Mm -hmm. is a significant part of understanding the problems, extreme Mm -hmm. hyper-focus, going super deep to learn about certain things. Not everyone is built for that. It's the same reason that, you know, I I left medicine. I just wasn't built for that. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't getting the same joy from that that other people were getting. And I was square pegging around hole trying to do all this other business stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, you know, in medicine, I don't know about academia, but, and I've spoken about this a few times with people in medicine, we call it quitting. And I don't Mm. think we should call it quitting. I don't know if it's the same in academia that you move on. It, it, it is. It is, though. That's fascinating. I didn't know. I, I know a lot of physicians, but I, I've never talked to them about this. Um, go ahead. I'll let you finish that. Yeah, because we, we call it quitting. And I think we kind of need to normalize it and sort of not apologize for it, not, not also to not kind of lavish in it as like a better thing to have done or a great mm-hmm. thing to have done. It's just a change in career path. It's using what you've done so far to apply it to a different part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I, I hear it in your story, I hear it in other people's story that I think we just need to say that's okay. I think it's something that so many people, especially as technology is going to only increase and people are going to want to get more involved in it. It's not a better or a worse thing to do to leave a specialty, quick, quit a specialty to go and do mm-hmm. something else. It's just a different way of using the skills that you've had so far. And yeah. I hear it in your story too. Like you're mm-hmm. in, in, in part kind of apologizing for leaving and in part kind of like it's yeah. better, but it's just better for me, but I'm not saying it's better for everyone else. Like it's Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a weird, it's a, a weird path um, to, to take. I think, you know, I've thought a lot about this because I, um, and I think it's different in medicine because, you know, we need more physicians, we need more nurses, True. right? Like there's always that, that, 
that lack of that. And, you know, I think COVID kind of brought that to light. Mental health resources are really yeah. down in rural areas. You know, there's, there's all of that going on. Um, but for uh, PhDs, we actually have an overabundance, right? Because that model, right. that model is so antiquated. It started off as a way to be, you know, somebody's apprentice, but then pretty soon you've got too many people that want to do that, right? Um, but yet the model hasn't changed. Um, and so <laughs> what I wish, I, I, first of all, I agree that it shouldn't be this, we don't call it quitting, but it's, you know, a lot of times it's like, you'll hear people say, I failed to make you a scientist. And it's like, but I can be a scientist, <laughs> you know, I can be a scientist, not, you know, under this, like, you know, ivory tower. Um, but I think um, what I wish we would do more of is right at the, at the start, because I was very naive when I started grad school. I didn't even, I thought of like tech as like people just doing, you know, computer AI work, which I do, but um, but also maybe I thought of like big pharma. I, I had no idea what it meant to have an alternative career in science. Yeah. And we never talked about it um, in grad school. I think maybe this is starting to change now, but when I was in grad school, we didn't talk about that. And so if you, part of that normalizing process has to be like showing, you know, students that these are other avenues you can take. Right. Um, and that has to actually even start even before you have a PhD, because sometimes PhDs aren't for everybody and medical school isn't for everybody. Like even in college, I wish maybe I could have started along a tech track, you know, sooner. Um, at the same time, my PhD has helped me immensely. So I, I don't think I would have done anything sure. differently. But, you know, like there has to be education on what's possible. And I also think there has to be incentives. Yep. You know, a lot of times, you know, grants are, are giving money to like early investigators under an academic setting, but it's like, we should be doing this more, you know, along various, you know, various sectors, um, in my opinion. Totally so. agree. I think it's about having those options without putting one path over another yeah. in terms of its rank or right. superiority or right. any of those things, because I think... At the end of the day, it's horses for courses. It's it, I was always going to be better with something that was far more varied, bit of everything, jack of all trades, master of none, bit of tech, mm -hmm. bit of business, bit of healthcare. I was always going to go towards that, whether it was perceived as better or worse. Mm -hmm. I wasn't CV chasing. I was literally just trying to do the thing that I enjoyed. And I think right. it's the same people that stay in medicine, stay in academia, stay in a scientist, like whatever it is is okay it's just whatever mm -hmm. you're best at and that you're going to wake up every day enjoying it's funny exactly. I, I, I see that a lot in health tech you know i think pe people on one hand chase it and they chase technology because they just think it's the better career thing to do or they think i've just got to be an entrepreneur i've got to i, I want that title i want whatever it is and it, it's like it's not for everyone and that's not people pulling up the ladder that's saying like it'll really like do one for your mental health if, you, if you're not mm -hmm. loving it and I think it's mm -hmm. the same thing as me staying in medicine you know it was always going to be a struggle for me staying in medicine for the same reasons and I didn't get the same joy as everyone else which I was jealous of but anyway mm -hmm. we digress um <laughs> I want to talk to you about IBM and obviously that everything you've talked about so far and that research journey is incredibly fascinating interesting like the stuff that you're obviously part of and doing and researching how does that relate to what you're now doing at IBM? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the cool things is in some ways, um, you know, I was kind of selected because I had this, this various background. So 
Um, when I joined, we had uh, just started a, a joint research collaboration with a medical device company, Boston Scientific. Um, and they do primarily, not, not only, but they do primarily spinal cord stimulation for, for chronic pain. Um, and so, you know, they were looking at this problem of, you know, trying to, um, you know, measure pain in a more dimensional <laughs> way, right, um, in a more objective way. And, you know, really, um, you know, I think part of what I've been doing with, with that whole project over the last over four years now is taking what I've learned, <laughs> you know, as a pain researcher and trying to help this on a much bigger broader scale, right? Um, for a commercial space as well. Um, so just to jump in for one second. Yeah, so please. that spinal cord stimulator, I've actually had the inventor of that device on this podcast because he sold it to Abbott, I believe, first, mm. who then acquired who then uh or was it Abbott? I can't remember. Anyway, he got it acquired by someone and Boston Scientific then acquired that. So yeah, it's um, it's a huge, it's a growing space. It's a growing space. And I am not a spinal cord <laughs> simulator expert at all. <laughs> you know, so um, so I had to really take what I knew about, you know, the physiology, the psychology, the neuroscience of pain and really kind of apply it to, to the projects that we're working on right now. Um, and, you know, it, it really does bring a mix of the clinical aspect. You know, what I love so much about the project is that, you know, we have at IBM, you know, so many different kinds of researchers. So we've got neuroscientists like me, we have engineers, we have people in control theory, you know, we have uh, people that are specialized in AI and machine learning, you know, all of us are working together with, you know, with Boston Scientific and clinicians and people that program the devices and, you know, and so we're able to actually take all of our backgrounds and put it together, you know, to do something really meaningful. Um, and I don't think that happens enough, <laughs> right, um, in, in research in general. So it's a, it's a tough thing to do, um, but it's really, really important. Um, That's awesome. I think <laughs> you said like the meeting of all of those minds together is where it gets exciting because mm -hmm. like pretty much everyone that comes on this podcast, you're impact driven, like your eyes light up when you talk about solutions and mm -hmm. talking about solving problems. And I'm interested, what, what is the North star here? What, what is it that you guys as a group are trying to go towards? Like, what are you building? What are you researching and mm -hmm. yeah. discussing with the engineers and things so like I that? So I think, yeah, so it's a great question. So I think one of the, the main things is, and you and I've kind of already touched on this is, you know, people tend to think of pain um, only along one dimension, like intensity yeah. or location, right? And they also tend to think of it from zero to 10. Um, but especially with something like chronic pain, that is a multidimensional experience constantly for a person. Yeah. Um, and it also is an experience that cannot be measured just in the clinic, right? So people often do these cross-sectional clinic visits that are separated by months in time. And that doesn't at all capture, again, this person's overall experience or their story. So, you know, one of the things we're really trying to do is how do we create a multidimensional like pain index, like, you know, that involves not just intensity, but sleep and mood and activity and medication use and sociability and all of these things. So how do we combine those, you know, and track them in time? So that's, you know, one thing that we're really interested in and the dynamics of that um, related, you know, how do you, so we, um, for the North American uh, Neuromodulation Society this year, or I guess last year, sorry, it's already 2021. Um, <laughs> uh, last year, you know, we were able to use that, 
combination. So um, the combination of many different things to actually track people while they were experiencing COVID, you know? And so um, it's, it's one of those, those things where it's like, you might think that, you know, all pain patients, right. Um, they were negatively impacted by COVID, right. Because maybe they couldn't go to their physicians. They couldn't get their medications on time. They couldn't get the treatments that they needed. But when you start looking at the multiple aspects of this and you start seeing patterns, you start seeing subtypes of patients, this type of thing, you start going, Oh, some people actually did better, right? Because they don't, they're not moving as much. They get to be with their family more often. They, you know, do do all this stuff. Other people are negatively impacted, right? And so you start going, ah, we can make, you know, more precise clinical decisions because of this, right? More, more um, precise uh, medication, medication decisions or spinal cord stimulation decisions when we understand people's multidimensional experience better. So I would say that's, that's one of the very large, you know, big picture items we're trying to do. Um, and then the other thing kind of also gets at, um, you know, something we talked about, which is how subjective pain is. And I think, and again, this is my opinion, but I think there's always going to be something subjective and a bit unknowable about everybody's, you know, perception, but I don't think that there are certain things that are not uh, knowable or totally not um, objective, right? I think there's a way that we can, through various biomarkers, sensors, patterns that we see, make this hidden experience uh, seen uh, more visible and objective. And so, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is we're, we're also using, you know, biomarkers from sleep sensors, from smart watches and steps and such, and following people in time to also try to do something like this. Can we, can we also, we use um, voice, right? So we use what people say, how they say it, the acoustics, the content of their voice. Can we actually capture something about that multidimensional pain state in a way that is objective, less burdensome, you know, for the patient? Um, ultimately, you know, spinal cord stimulation already is really personalized. Um, you know, people come in, they talk in depth with those programmers and their physicians to figure out, you know, where's the pain, you know, located, where can we offer the best coverage? Um, you know, do you like programs that you feel? Do you like things that you don't feel? Let me show, you know, let me give you a ton of things that you can play with. Um, but if we can understand this and do so more objectively, we can further personalize, you know, that experience for those people. So I think that's kind of the ultimate goal here um, with Amazing. the project. And so, with the everything you've just mentioned there, the research that you're doing, the information that you're learning, what happens to that? Are you guys then building things? Are you guys then writing papers to, to educate? What are you guys doing mm-hmm. with all this new information? Right. So the first is I don't make any of like the business decisions. So I can't really <laughs> comment on what we're, what we're doing with, with that. You know, they don't, they luckily just pay me for the research. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously we've already pointed, you know, education here and, and showing people what we're doing is obviously important. So we've, yeah. we've already um, had multiple, um, they're not really publications, but they're, you know, posters and talks and such in um, the World Institute of Pain, the Neuromodulation, you know, society. So that's already out there, right? And I, I, you know, I think that that's important that we continue to do things like that. Um, awesome. Yeah. And so do you personally work with, I mean, you mentioned engineers, I mean, do you work with um, 
do you work with like startups at all? Do you look at what's going on from that perspective? Do you have a view of like what's going on in the startup space and the technology space when it comes to pain? Uh, for me personally, yes. Um, you know, for IBM and what we do in this project, no. Um, so my previous uh, lab uh, advisor um, at Northwestern actually has like a full startup, you know, along this oh, cool. trying to personalize pain medicine and such, oh, wow. um, you know, um, through, you know, smartphone technology, but also almost like health coaches that he's yeah. carrying with this because, you know, it's part of like, um, you know, Northwestern has this new, I think it's only a couple years old, you know, bench to bedside pain clinic, essentially. Um, and, and so, um, you know, this is also, I think, part of that and part of taking his research and the things that we did in his lab and putting it into practice. So I know, and there's so many, there's so many apps now that are trying to track, you know, patients, uh, pain and behavior in time. So, you know, I, in terms of that, um, that particular startup, I'm, I'm familiar, but um, you know, everything else, not, not really, sure. there's so much going on though in this space. <laughs> well, definitely. And, and in terms of those, it, well, it's interesting to me, right? I I've seen, I've read the news or the health tech news, uh, over the last few weeks and noticed that there are so many startups, which are becoming scale-ups, I suppose, raising a heck of a lot of money, but it seems like the, the newer model, is not what we talked about before, which was that, hey, this app is going to solve all our problems because we're going to type all this stuff in and we're going to get everything sorted. They're adding in this layer of coaching. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a trend. I know mm -hmm. that even in like things like diabetes, like Oviva is one that, that over here in Europe and Switzerland and stuff, they, they do the same thing and been doing it for a long time. But it seems a lot more common now that, when you mm -hmm. consider something like chronic pain, as we've talked about, all the research that you're doing with IBM and and have done previously and know about pain, it it points to the fact that it is obviously complex. It is obviously far more than just what can be done with a simple software solution. This mm -hmm. health coaching layer acknowledges that and actually wraps a service around the software. Mm -hmm. Like we've said on this podcast a few times, you know, healthcare can't just be a collection of products it has to be a service it has to be something that picks a patient up when they first tell you or tell a system mm -hmm. or tell an app or tell something that something is wrong and it has mm -hmm. to look after them until they're put back down again and they're mm -hmm. either fixed or have more information or are okay or are redirected to something better it definitely seems to me that from a when it comes to technology to do with chronic pain there has to be a human element, which seems, I imagine for some people quite backwards. But as we've talked about, I think technology can only emancipate people to solve the chronic pain problem mm -hmm. rather than solving the chronic pain problem itself, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It does. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, you know, there's always, I shouldn't say always, but there's often a social component to pain, especially mm. when you're seeking, when you're seeking treatment, <laughs> there's always a social component. Um, and so, you know, you're right. I think it would be a mistake to not have another, another human in the loop um, with, within that. Um, and, you know, and this is, I don't want to digress too much, especially <laughs> since we're, you know, approaching however many 45 minutes, but um, you know, one thing I I've done, so I, I also, in my spare time, I'm, I, I do ballroom dance. 
And dance for me, I, I absolutely love, I find it cathartic, but I've also seen um, people with, you know, various neurological problems like, you know, Parkinson's and such, and even Alzheimer's. I, when you watch them dance, it's like, you have no idea that there's something else going on. Right. And so I've been really curious about, you know, um, dance for, um, for something like pain. And that got me into dance movement therapy, which is something that's super interesting. And I bring this up in this context because, you know, I've, I've worked with some people who work with chronic pain patients and they have them in some ways they go, Hey, you know, will you show me like with your body, like what this pain feels like, right? Show me it. The person kind of maybe will hunch over or like will grimace or all of this. And then the practitioner will go in front of them and mirror them, right? So mirrors what they see in that person. And the amount of emotion that often follows that first interaction is huge, right? And, and that to me shows just the importance, not just of the social aspect, but of being seen and heard and followed and cared for, for, for a lot of these patients. And I think that's also what that, that um, health coach or that pain coach is also giving you, right? Um, and it's a service too that isn't necessarily tied. I, I don't think it, I, I think we have to be really careful about if, if these services don't become tied to physicians and, and, you know, yep. and people that know things about the body, right. That's a whole other story, but it, it does, you know, having somebody else who isn't necessarily phys- your physician also helping you through something, I think, and creating kind of that social, you know, support network um, is also important because then it takes away some of those, you know, inner weird interactions that people might feel uncomfortable with, you know, with their actual physician. So yeah. I totally agree. There's there's so there are so many moving parts to addressing the issue of chronic pain. But there's also a lot of opportunity. I think mm-hmm. I think there really is for for entrepreneurs that are listening that are interested in pursuing an idea in chronic pain. I think for, for what Sarah just said about the complexity of it, what we've talked about around can you emancipate clinicians that are bogged down in admin and everything else that they're bogged down in to free up their time to add in the human element or indeed to find a business model that can do that I think is extremely important to addressing the chronic pain issue um it's interesting you bring up you know your spinal cord stimulation and things like that I've looked I've looked at um spinal cord stimulation a few other bits in the context of the opioid crisis and people having these in and and being able to come down on opioids and things like that. I think acute pain is something we haven't touched on much. We haven't got much time left, but um, what's your, what's your view on, I suppose this, these types, I know you're not an expert, but like in terms of addressing something like the opioid crisis, opioids, obviously treating acute pain, we could talk about the physiology of that, but um, in terms of maybe it's IBM, maybe it's other things you're aware of. Spinal cord stimulation is one of them. Is is technology going to help us with the opioid crisis? Are there any oh, other things out there? Hundred percent, yeah. So you know, IBM is has a ton of of work on what we call like good tech or AI for social good, and we've actually published a paper um, on, and it's been in a few different um, conferences as well, looking at you know using a uh, existing healthcare data to try to, you know, figure out, well, 
you know, if we have a huge population of people, you know, is there something about like their um, prescriptions that make them more likely, you know, to, oh, to become addicted, right? You know, so, so big data and, and, and such can actually, and as already being used to try and identify, well, are certain people more at risk or are there certain, you know, certain combinations of opiates, is it synthetic opiates, et cetera, you know, that makes, um, you know, someone more likely to be addicted. So, so the, the short answer is yes, I think technology can help, um, you know, but again, right, like the tech, is only as good as the data that's that's in in it, right? And right. so, I'm I'm a big proponent of making sure that the data is representative of of the population, right? And and there's so and I I know I don't mean to backtrack, but it's you know there's so much to unpack there because there's many populations, at least in the U.S., because um, we have you know a different history there that feel um, you know scared, right, to go into research studies on this. Or scared to go to the doctor, or they, they don't have, you know, to the same medical resources that other people do. Um, and so then when you're trying to study and you're trying to make these models for such a thing like opioid crisis, right, you have to ask who are your models for, you know, and, and are they representative? Um, so yes, I think tech can and, and will help with this. But, you know, as researchers, as scientists and, and such, we need to make sure that the tech has, you know, the right data to, to work with, the mm. best data that we can we can do for those models. You know? And if if we were to get to the point that you describe where we do have good data, it is representative, what's the potential impact then? So if we fast forward to the future and we look at, think about what you guys are doing at IBM think, and other things that are going on, what do you think is the best case scenario here? <laughs> That's really good. I mean, obviously I cannot predict the future. Um, <laughs> and That's why it's such an interesting question. You can't get it wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Um, or you can, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think everyone um, gets it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I've never been one. I mean, I, I know a lot of people are worried about, you know, machines, you know, replacing humans and such. Um, I think that machines, AI, technology, you know, can, we can use that to, to better, you know, our society, right? And we can function with it. It, it. it can be this symbiotic relationship that doesn't have to completely and cannot completely, you know, replace the, the, the human element. Um, obviously humans are flawed. <laughs> there are some things that we could definitely do better and we need tech to help us <laughs> and maybe do it completely differently. But there's also something, you know, inherently, this sounds so cheesy, I can't believe I'm saying it, inherently beautiful about like the way that humans interact with each other and with the yeah. world. And I think that, you know, we should be trying to enhance that, um, yeah. you know, in, in whatever we do. I mean, yeah, it's cheesy. I'd agree with you though, but I think it, for whatever reason, this is, this is where the conversation always tends to go whenever I talk about pain, because I think it is this kind of... <sighs> it's imperceptible of others. So you have to go to some sort of philosophical place to understand it. You, you, you can't perceive someone else's pain. You, well, you can only through the five senses you have. And yeah. I don't know, it, it, yeah. it gets very philosophical very quickly, but I think it has to go through that lens. It has to. I, I, I love the philosophic, uh, the philosophical lens because, you know, it's not just about whether or not you can know somebody else's pain, but it's also about, you know, what I hear so often, and this I think plenty of people will disagree with me on, but um, is you want to, we want to cure pain, 
you know, this whole thing of like curing pain or taking pain away or preventing pain, but pain (laughs) as a perception, as a feeling, as an embodied sensation, um, not even just physical, but also as you talked about emotional, Mm. like that gives us an anchor to also experience pleasure, right? If we didn't have something like this, right? What does that even mean to have the opposite, right? And so like this, you know, this idea of taking something away, one that functions as a warning system, I don't think is necessarily the best idea. Obviously, we don't want people to be, you know, um, disabled by something. Um, But I think like as as humans, like we really have to, you know, think about what it would look like to, you know, to live in a life where (laughs) we only have good things, like, would they even be good anymore? And I know that's super philosophical, but like, you know, this is what I see all the time is, uh, you know, sometimes our darkest sensations or emotions actually like shed light and help us understand, you know, the really good things. It becomes Um, important even for entrepreneurs listening that are thinking about a solution in the chronic pain space it becomes important because it it determines i suppose the language that you use what are you Mm. aiming what are you Mm -hmm. aiming for even as you say Mm -hmm. is it reduction of pain is it removal of pain if so Mm -hmm. what does that mean for how your solution is perceived and what what you get like this there's so there's so much about it Mm -hmm. um that i I think yeah, go yeah. For it. even the word, you know, chronic, I, I think I listened to, I listened to one of your podcasts and you had this really cool discussion about whether you should call it chronic or like pervasive, you know, or, or not pervasive, persistent. Right. And, yeah, and, and yeah. like that, that, that really matters, you know, um, and, and the role of like acceptance, right. It doesn't mean that you can't try to control your pain or reduce it, but like, what does it mean to accept something mm. like that? And, you know, the, the cognitive, you know, behavioral aspect of that. Um, so you're right. You know, if we don't think about these things, um, <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we build proper solutions? Right. I get um, Yeah, I get it. So, I get yeah. it completely. And it comes I, I, down to, <laughs> it comes down to entrepreneurs understanding the problem. We talk about it so much on this podcast about really understanding the problem, understanding everybody that that problem affects every understanding, every understanding the value of your potential solution to all of those people there are some like stakeholders left right and center when it comes to chronic or persistent pain and to, to have an understanding of this philosophical element to have an understanding of what we're actually what problem are we actually trying to solve in chronic pain requires mm-hmm. i think this understanding of the whole thing and mm-hmm. i think it is a super important conversation to have. My final question before we wrap up would be uh, in terms of what you guys have got going on at IBM right now, what's the, what's the next thing that we can expect to see? What, what are you working on that's exciting? Yeah. So um, one thing you can see is I just got a paper published <laughs> um, and that's looking at um, using language to identify and classify uh, placebo responders and non-responders uh, in pain. So this is objective, you know, language data, machine mm-hmm. learning. Um, so that's one thing that's, you know, out um, uh, and available through uh, the journal pain now. So um you know, we have a variety of things going on. So, you know, all of this is under this idea of building this like digital health platform, right? And so we're really, you know, we're really trying to to take biomarkers to combine all these kinds of clinical data, right, together in one space, you know, and and, and learn about this and help help clinicians make decisions, not just about 
you know, chronic pain, but we also, you know, we have, um, work in Alzheimer's, we have work in depression, we have, you know, a variety of, of patient populations. So I think all of this is, is really fun, um, funneled under that, you know, larger umbrella, um, and goal for IBM research. Awesome. And Sarah, yeah. for people that want to learn a bit more about what you guys are doing, at IBM research, or indeed they want to have a chat to you about what mm-hmm. you do a bit more, what's the best way for them to reach you and, or find out what IBM are doing? Yeah. I mean, reaching me, uh, they can email me. I don't know. Should I just say my email out loud here? Sure. Or... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can email me. Uh, it's Sarah, S-A-R-A dot E as an elephant dot burger, B-E-R-G-E-R at IBM.com. Um, and I mean, honestly, even if people just start <laughs> and they Google IBM research, <laughs> you know, our website will take you into all the cool places that, you know, that we're doing. I mean, it's, it's a rabbit hole of amazingness. So, (laughs) um, yeah, start there. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I love, as you can tell, I love getting into these conversations about, uh, about pain and, and where this is all from and where this is all going. I think there's, there's a lot of problems to solve through technology that can be done. I think it has to, as we've talked about, emancipate people to Mm -hmm. to care for other people i think that ultimately is how we solve a lot of chronic pain issues and that's without getting too political but um as i say pleasure having you on and uh yeah look forward to hearing and seeing more of what you guys are up to ibm yeah thank you so much this has been a lot of fun hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.